for a slightly tardy beginning. I had a lot on my plate sometimes, and it's just very hard to balance everything. Okay, we're just getting fired up here. I'm just going to go live on Facebook as well. And we shall begin momentarily. Okay, we are live. Hello, Skippy. Hello, Valette. Anybody else want to say hello? I'm watching the screen tonight. So before I begin, I want to thank you all for joining what I hope will be a phenomenal segment of Tom's Talmud Tish. The Talmud Tish is going to be serving up the exciting lessons and the delectable ideas that are connected to Purim. That's the next big holiday in our Jewish calendar. Today's episode, Awoken, has been generously sponsored by Sharon Adler and Martin Kushner to commemorate Tom's fifth yard site, that's Yaakov, Ben Avram Halevi, Zechron Levracha, as well as Sharon's dad, whose first yard site is um, coming right up. His name was Pinchas Ben David HaKoyen, Zechron Levracha. In Ganeden, in paradise, where neshamas, holy good neshamas are, they study Torah. Mitzvahs, they can't do. But Torah they study. And they study Torah on a very profound, in a very deep, in a very delightful way. But the interesting thing is it says that they like to listen into Torah study in this world as well. And maybe they're listening in tonight. Just as all of you from around the world are listening in, maybe Nishamas from a higher place can listen in too. Because whilst the Torah study generates the most delight on high, it makes the greatest impact 
but it's studied right here in our proverbial below. So, with no further ado, thank you, Michal David, for posting that. I believe it's posted as well, anyway, in the text. Let's get right into it. I don't know how many of you watched the previous class. If you didn't, I'm just going to quickly recap. You know the story. You didn't have to watch the movie on this one. Most Jewish people know the story of Purim. The story of Hanukkah, most people don't know. <laughs> we don't talk about the story of Hanukkah. We talk about the climax of Hanukkah, the menorah whose flames didn't extinguish for eight miraculous days. We talk about the message and the motif. The story of Hanukkah is not well-known, and it's not, as a rule, discussed. That's a subject for another day. I gave a class on that, a lecture on that, this year, Hanukkah, and it's actually available on the YouTube channel. But the story of Purim, now that's a big deal. We should know this story because we are obligated to listen to it twice annually, on the evening of Purim and at some point during the day. It's scripture, and as such, what meets the eye on the surface will never tell the whole story. The Gemara Mesechet Megillah that we are presently studying records for us the expositions of our sages, how they plumbed the depths as they scanned the text, what they looked for, and how they were able to find allusion to the oral tradition that had been passed from generation to generation along with the written scroll of Esther. And of course, eventually the Gemara is committed to writing, and you and I have the privilege and the incredible duty to study our Gemara, and then to study the writings and commentaries upon the Gemara as we delve into every tiny nano detail for none of them is empty. The Queen's gambit was that she's going to find a way to get through the Achashverosh. It's not easy. She has to find a way to get this awful decree, this horrible law that legislates genocide of world Jewry. The clock is ticking. It's less than 11 months away. But Esther knows she has to act decisively very quickly. So Mordechai told her. We don't really have full clarity as to what Esther's plan was or even if she actually had the full plan. She's a brilliant strategist. She thinks on her feet and along with an enormous reservoir of faith and trust in Hashem, she's got an enormous amount of brain power, a master chess player. Her, her gambit was that she needed to do something, something to draw Achashverosh, who is the monarch, the king, but the crown 
sits on the head uneasily, as Shakespeare said. She has to make sure that Haman is going to be close by. <coughs> because if Achashverosh loses sight of Haman or she loses sight of Haman, all bets are off. In our previous episode, we plumbed the depths of Esther's seemingly outlandish request. She said, I just want to have dinner with the devil. Ahasuerus offered her half the kingdom. Well, it wasn't that generous. It wasn't exactly half the kingdom. But he offered to help. He said, what is it you need, my dear? She doesn't make her move. Esther knows it's still premature. She brings Ahasuerus and Haman to her palace. And they have a beautiful party. We don't know what the menu was, but we do know that a lot of fine wine was served and consumed. Achashverosh is by now well inebriated. He's good at these things. And once again, he turns to Esther and he makes the same seemingly generous offer. Up to half the kingdom. In the previous episode, we went into the details of what exactly that offer meant. But Esther doesn't take the bait. Not yet. She said, hmm. Well, if you're willing to be generous and do what I ask, let's have dinner again. Just you and the devil, your royal highness. Of course, she doesn't say the devil. Haman is Persian's favorite prince or prime minister. He's a very popular man. Well, maybe he's not so popular. But he still is very powerful. And it's too soon. The Gemara doesn't see anything in this exchange. The Gemara doesn't delve into it. The Gemara doesn't say there is much in the Medrash and in later rabbinic commentaries, what exactly happened at the meal? Why did Esther respond as she responded? What happens afterwards with Haman is fascinating. Haman catches sight of Mordechai. He makes like a cameo appearance at the palace compound. And Haman is on a high. He's probably drunk, or at least somewhat inebriated. He's feeling fantastic. He has no idea that Esther is actually Jewish. He's just had a private dinner with the queen and the king and nobody else. He is the man. Rich, famous, powerful, you name it. Haman has it. But the moment he catches sight of Mordechai, everything sours. He can't enjoy any of his success, as long as that Jew is still alive. The Gemara still doesn't comment. Hohen goes home, and he begins to kind of give himself therapy. He's got to make himself feel good. Today, people smoke a joint. Hohen tried that. He was drunk already. It didn't help him. 
So the Megillah tells us that he gathers together his wicked wife, Zeresh, and his good friends. We don't know much about these friends, at least not at this point. But Haman's form of self-therapy is to speak about himself. He loves to speak about himself. Then again, most people do. He counts his blessings. That's supposed to make you humble. It's supposed to give you an attitude of gratitude. Not for Haman. Well, after all, he's genetically predisposed to counting everything he's got. He says, I got lots. I could use more. That's what Esau said. Yaakov of, you know, Father Jacob, Mordechai and Esther's ancestor, says, Yeshli Kol. I have, I have everything. Everything I could ask for. Esau said, Yeshli Rav. I got lots. I got lots. Yeah, I could use some more. He was never satisfied. Neither is Haman. The Gemara now that we're going to study is found on Daf Tesvav Amid Beis. That's folio page 15, side B. And the Gemara is going to begin with Haman's self-therapy. I'm going to share with you what the Gemara says. I'm going to try to explain its meaning to you. And then I'm going to tell you why I actually had a hard time with this. Why it didn't, didn't speak to me. Until I realized. I just realized something. And it kind of made it all come together. It helped me understand what this Gemara is saying. Why it has to say it. And in fact, why the Gemara doesn't comment on anything I just said. It doesn't even mention anything I just said. It's part of the story. It's in the Megillah. We must listen to every word. The Medrash speaks about it. The commentaries speak about it. The Gemara doesn't. Because the Gemara is not actually interested in commenting on the story. That's a Midrashic outlook. The Gemara does want to do is explain to us the profundity of the miracle by highlighting the mechanics of the challenges as they were. That's my supposition. But please follow along with me and you can tell me what you think. That's, that's how the Gemara speaks to me. So the Gemara tells us now, Haman told them, the glory, the, the opulence, his incredible wealth. Talked about his enormous amount of children. So the Gemara wants to know what's a lot of children. 
says, Rav Banav, a lot of children. What's a lot of children? And I'm looking at this Gemara, I'm saying like, I don't know what a lot of children is. Who cares? A lot is a relative term. You don't need Einstein's special theory of relativity to know that when somebody says a lot, it depends who's talking and what the context is. When I was a little boy, I once got a lot of Hanukkah gelt from all my aunts and all my uncles. It was almost $100. I remember asking my mother, am I a millionaire now? Does this, does this make me rich? <laughs> and she laughed. She said, no, not really. I mean, she said, okay, for, for where you are now. I felt so rich. A kid with a hundred bucks. I couldn't believe it. At the time, it was a lot of money for me. What's a lot? For a person who barely scrapes by, $100,000 is an enormous amount of money. For a person who's doing big business, $100 million is a lot of money. What does it mean, Roy Bonov? Okay, I, I understand the question. But why is the Gemara asking this question? Who cares? The Kama Rav Bonov. And how many was it? I'm thinking to myself, Lamai Nafkamina. Who gives a hoot? That's my first question. My second thing is, one second. How many? The Megillah says how many. The Gemara doesn't ask questions that the Megillah answers. Any child knows the answer to that. How many children did Haman have? Ten. And I'm like, what is going on over here? So the commentaries talk about this, actually. I should say, thankfully. The Maharsha says, it's not reasonable to say that the Gemara is asking how many children does he have when in fact the Megillah mentions how many children he has. That's obvious. Why does the Megillah tell us the Roiv Bonov? Marsha says, when Haman was sitting with his friends, when he was talking about his wealth and his opulence, so Haman was... Haman was... Uh, Boasting, because he had a lot. Ten children is not a lot of children. I'm sorry to burst your bubbles. I know in today's Western world, ten children is a lot of children. But you know, in the ancient world, for a person like Haman, ten children was not a lot of children at all. In fact, I did a quick little Google search. Like, what did harems look like? Okay, harems are, there was a lot of women in these harems. Some of them were wives. Some of them were concubines. Some of them were slaves. So apparently there was a king, or something like that, named Tamba of Banares in India, 
whose harem numbered 16,000. Wow. That's a very big harem. I mean, I think that's the biggest harem in history. Kublai Khan, for example, had four queens and 7,000 concubines. So somebody's got four queens and 7,000 concubines. Humans boasting about 10 kids? I mean, if even only a fraction of those concubines actually had children, that's still a lot more than 10 children. Some sheikhs today have 60 or 70 children. So the problem, the Gemara says, V'roiv Bonov, where's the Roiv Bonov? We understand he was tremendously wealthy, but Roiv Bonov, so many children? Why was he, how did he, he self-therapize? He should have been sorry about himself. Oh, all I got is 10 kids. The king has a harem of thousands of women. Who knows how many children he'll have? Haman's wealth was, we learned, almost unparalleled. It's like richer than the king. He said, don't worry about the Jews. Yeah, you got some economic concerns. I'll make up the short for myself. It's like a billionaire, many times over. So a billionaire, many times over, 10 kids? Like, okay, he had a large family. Most Hasidic families today have 10 children. And it used to be that many people had large families like that. So something's not adding up. And that's why the Gemara says, okay, Reiv Banov, that doesn't even make sense. Kama, Kama Reiv Banov, how much was it? Omar Rav. So Rav says, Lamed. He had 30 sons. Okay, it's not enormous, but I don't know anybody with 30 sons. 30 sons. He says, Asara Mesu. Ten died. Asara nitlu. Ten were hung. The asara mechazrin alapsochim. And ten turned into paupers, going from door to door, begging for alms to survive. And as the Sifse Chachamim points out, Oni Choshev Kemes, in our tradition, a dead per, a, a person who loses everything is like dead. Good for dead. We have something similar with regard to our father Jacob. He's on the run, and Eliphaz, his nephew, comes after him. That's Esau's big boy. Esau said, Big boy, kill my brother. Bring me back his head. Big boy said, yes, pops. And Yaakov doesn't want to have to kill his nephew or be killed in the process. He says to him, look, look, this is ridiculous. You're going to kill me now? And he says, hey, my honor. What am I going to do? Dad said, I, made a, I promised dad. It's kind of like the mafia kind of, you know, ethics. 
says, what do we do with, with dad's command? So Yaakov says, mug me. Take everything I have. And then you can say, you left me for dead. And you won't be lying. Elisa thinks that's not a bad idea. And anyway, it'll enrich me. And Yaakov had a lot of money on him. He was going to Chara. He was supposed to do, you know, a little flash of the cash to try to impress his uh, uncle Lovan. But unfortunately for him, he comes impoverished with zero. Zilch, nada, nothing. Lovan is not impressed. So we have a precedent that's very, very old in Torah literature where Oni Choshev Kemes. And as such, we hear about children who've died. So he says, some died figuratively and some died literally. So that's the meaning of a lot of sons. This is the opinion of Rav. Now it's interesting to note that in the Marshas makes a calculation, he says that according to Torah logic, when the Torah specifies something, like a number, then it's indicating that there's more than this. This is, this is what we're showing you. It's like, here's 10, actually means there's 20. 10 of, like kind of like a group. So the Masha's reasoning is that it actually makes sense to say that the 10 that are identified are symbolic of another 10. Okay, but the problem is we have not 10, but 30. So the Masha says, because we have two traditions, we have a tradition that they became impoverished and a tradition that they died, or according to the Medrash on, in, on Tilim, which is called Medrash Shochertov, on Psalm 22, the Medrash Shochertov says that they, they, were, they, they died during the course of the next 12 months. Ten died now, at the same time with Haman, and then over the next 12 months, the other ten died. So because we see that there seems to be this idea of some of them dying, and some of them figuratively dying, we come up with the number 30. At any rate, this is the frames of reference, so to speak, that we, we use the, the biblical frame of reference identifying ten, which indicates that there's more where these came from, and it's a lot of kids. This is the opinion of Rav. The majority of the sages disagreed. And the rabbi said, Ten were killed. That's, you know, that's, that, that Megillah talks about that. Megillah doesn't talk about other children being killed. So here we have some who maintain they were killed. The Medrash is saying that, 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 that they were, they, some say they died, some say they were killed. But the Rabbanon doesn't say that. So according to the Rabbanon, Haman had 80 children. Ten were killed. And then the other ten died figuratively. Oisan, Shemechazren, al those who were, so to speak, going from door to door, Shivim were 70. Shivim Havoi. Okay, so Rav uses the figure of 10 to kind of multiply. And he ends up with 30. But where do you get the number 70 from? Where is there any indication in the Megillah 
that Haman had 70. I understand you want to say he had a lot of children. That's nice, but you can't just pull a number out of a hat. There has to be some kind of biblical reference to back that up. So the Rabbanon say, for it is written, and this is a Pasuk, which is to be found in the book of Shmuel. In Shmuel Aleph, Peidek Beis, Pasuk Hey. We'll take a look inside the actual Pasuk here. So the Pasuk says, Sveim Balechem Niskaru Ureivim Chodelu what does this mean? So on a straightforward, simple level, it says, Sveim belechem, means satiated with bread. And why does it say, Sveim belechem niskaru, that those who are satiated with bread were hired? He says, they didn't need to be hired. Rashi says, People who are hungry need to work to make a living. So, what is the meaning of the Pasuk that says, So the Mepharshim tell us, That the, the hungry were following, so to speak, beating a path to people's doorstep to be able to find a little bit of bread. Or as the Mitzudasim puts it, were prepared to do any kind of menial job to feed themselves. Okay, what does it have to do with Haman? That, that seems to have absolutely nothing to do. People who are hungry or full and the kind of work that they're going to look for. So the Gemara says that we have a method of biblical ecstasis which is called al-tikri. Al-tikri, I just want to point out if anybody has any questions, you can post your questions here in the chat. And I am trying to monitor the chat and I'll be happy to read your questions and try and answer them. So the method of al-tikri works like this. Uh, <laughs> and they say, don't try this at home. You, you, you can't decide on your own what can be read into or how you can revowelize words. This is not open for discretion, for everybody's own discretion or own choice. But there is a tradition that certain biblical words have multiple meaning. An oral tradition, ishmi pi ish, from generation to generation, from teacher to student, ultimately going back to the prophet themselves, that this word is read in Hebrew in one way, vowelized one way. However, it contains a subtext. And the method of this, mes this messaging is called al-tikri, Al-Tikri literally means don't read it in one way, but read it, read the word differently vowelized. For example, one of the most famous Al-Tikri 
teachings. It says, Al Tikra, Don't call them your children, call them those who build. So, in other words, the students of Torah build a better world because they are called Banayach, your children, but Banayach, Aboynoyach. So, we have to be constructive. And that's inherent within the scripture. So there's an al-tikri that comes along with this pasuk. And the al-tikri is, don't read it as sveim, but shivim. Now, usually, there's got to be something that tips us off to an al-tikri. There's something odd about the word. The word is written to begin with in a manner that flag, it flags itself. And... Most of the Mepharshim say this Pasuk doesn't seem to make sense straightforwardly because if you're full, then you're not looking for work or you're not hungry. <laughs> so you started off being full, but you're hungry and looking for work. So there's a, it's a little jilted. The Pasuk, the verse doesn't read easily. So the drasha that the sages received, the tradition the sages received, is that this shiv, shvei, this sveim is actually supposed to be read al tikra sveim ela shivim? It refers to, to to seventy. Now Rashi tells us something very interesting. He says sveim belechem neskaro yoinasam tirgem al banu shalhaman. We have a tradition going back to the genre of the Mishnah itself. Yonatan ben Uziel, this is the eldest disciple of Hillel, Hillel I, the famous Hillel. His youngest disciple is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, leader of the Jewish people at the time of the destruction of the second Beis Migdash. The greatest and eldest disciple was Yonatan ben Uziel. About Yonatan ben Uziel, we are told, we have a tradition that when he studied Torah, he actually created such friction in the air such holy energy that a bird who would fly by could be scorched by it. Anyway, Yonatan ben Uziel wrote a Targum. He wrote a translation. But his translation is not verbatim. It's not just translating the words. It's more like an interpretive and commentary translation. So I'm going to read to you from the words of Jonathan. Jonathan says, The prophet here is speaking, this is a prophetic, a prophetic vision of the children of Haman. That they were well taken care of, satiated. They had everything they could possibly want. They were prideful and powerful, and, and, and happy, and it didn't last. And in the end, they were following the doors, go, going to, beating a path from door to door, begging for alms. They went from being the most respected members of Shushan's high society to becoming the dregs of society. The winos, the homeless, the drunks, the people who couldn't literally put food on the table. Nebuch. I mean, not Nebuch and them. I said on people like that. So that's the, that's the drush of the Chachamim. And the drush of the Chachamim as such is that this idea is spoken about in the book of Samuel, of Shmuel, but it's speaking about the children of Haman.
That's a lot of kids. So he had 80 children. Not bad. And now we're going to get some serious, uh, real harem numbers. Veromi Baraba Omar. Kulon. Mosayim Ushmoina. It was actually 208, to be precise. And where do you see that in the scripture? Mosayim Ushmoina Havo. Shanema, for it is written, Veroiv Bonov. He spoke about a lot. His multitude. The word Veroiv, Bigimatria, has the numeric equivalent of Masan, the Arbesa Havas. So the Gemara says, one second. But Veroiv has the numeric equivalent not of 208, but rather. 214. So, Amad Nachman Yitzchak said, yes, true. However, there's actually six missing because you spelled Veroiv, Vov, Reish, Beis. Vov, Reish, Vov, Beis. Vov is six, Reish is 200. Vov is six, that's 212. And then Bez gives you 214. Bez is 2. But Rav Nachman Yitzchak says that that's not the way it's written. In Hebrew, sometimes there's a Vav which is pronounced but not written. The Vav is typically indicative of the, the uh, vowelization Choylam or Chaylam. So a Choylam, or maybe like they say in North America, a Cholam, has can be written either with a Vav, or there's just sometimes a dot on top of the word. It's not always written out. And as such, because it's written the vav reish beis, the number is actually 208. Vav is 6, reish is 200, and beis is 2. Okay. So, I mean, I understand why the Gemara has a question. That makes sense to me. Haman is boasting about 10 children. It's a big deal. Everybody had 10 children. There had to be bigger numbers. But there was a lot of ideas that the Gemara didn't talk about. <laughs> Look at the Medrash. There's like a, a lot of wild stuff that happened. When Haman came home and what he was thinking and how he saw Mordechai. What was Mordechai even doing there? He was supposed to be in Shulden. I mean, there's a lot of questions that don't seem to add up. The next day when he goes looking for Mordechai, he's not going to see Mordechai. Did he actually see him? Did he think he saw him? <laughs> the Gemara doesn't talk about this. But the Gemara does talk about this business of Arev Bonov. Only, it's the only detail we get. It doesn't talk about the gallows he built. It doesn't talk about the idea that Haman actually measured the gallows on himself. There was a lot of action. We're going to pick it up early on in the evening where our king is awoken. Haman will come later, and the Gemara will talk about that conversation as well. But the Gemara went directly from Esther's 
gambit, the queen's gambit, straight to the business of many children. So here's what I think. We're going to soon see that Ahasuerus was worried about a plot to overthrow him, to assassinate him. He was just worried. He didn't know who he, who he could trust. But you can always trust your kids. We read in the Gemara earlier different possibilities as to what Esther was thinking. One of them is that Esther was worried that if Haman gets wind of what she's up to, he'll cobble together a, a coup. He'll assassinate Ahasuerus and he'll take the, the crown himself. I, I mean, all bets are off. This is a corner cat. Haman would know very well that it was going to be his head or Ahasuerus's. And that loyalty wasn't. Esther said, I got to keep this guy very close. So how powerful was Haman? We'll soon find out he had plenty of enemies. One of Esther's ideas was to create jealousy between members of the court, the royal court, and Haman. The problem is, Haman was very, very comfortable because he had a lot of eyes and ears looking out for him. And he had a lot of loyalty, especially in that world, in the ancient patriarchal world of Persia. Sons were loyal to their father. If Haman had 208 sons walking around the palace, Haman was in a very good situation. Achashverosh doesn't have any sons. He's going to have a son named Darius later on. So, I would like to suggest that this Gemara does two things for us. Number one, it helps us to understand why Esther was so concerned. She had good reason for it. And clearly, Haman not only had these children, but he's boasting about them. This was his pride. So they were loyal. And number two, we realize not only what Esther's concerns were, but actually how powerful Haman was. He, he was almost, it was almost impossible to knock him off his perch. He could ignite a revolution, a rebellion in, in minutes. He probably had everything planned at all times. So Esther, who we read was concerned about <laughs> flip-flopping, she had to strike the iron. She would have one chance to strike the iron. And she'd have to strike it so hard, so devastatingly, that there would be no chance for Haman to wiggle out. Because if Haman just escapes, if he leaves, it's over. He's got enough children 
enough money, enough power, enough clout to end Achashverosh's reign. And Achashverosh is scared of him. And Achashverosh is a man without loyalty, as we'll soon hear. So I, this really made me kind of, it put it all together for me. I said, wow, so this, this is a very important part of the story. But it's not the f- major focus of our class tonight. It's like, a, okay, like, just like a little appetizer. And now we're going to move in to the main feature, Awoken, the name of our episode. You must know that according to our sages, and we learned this many an episode ago in this very Gemara, that these words, Balayla hahu nodada shnas hamelech, that night the king's slumber was disturbed, represent tokfoy shalnes. This is the power and profundity of the miracle. Here's where things start to change. According to one opinion, here's where the story should begin. In fact, we do not follow that opinion. The halacha is you have to read the Gansa Megillah, the whole story from beginning till the end, because only then can you appreciate the true message of Purim. Namely, God is always with us. And that events that seem to be disparate and random really aren't. But the miracles, they're happening now. Now is when everything is about to turn inside out. The Gemara quotes the Pasuk from the Megillah, On that night, the king's sleep was disturbed. What happened here? What is the Megillah really telling us? Omar Rabbi Tanchum. Rabbi Tanchum taught... On that night, the king's sleep was disturbed. Not King Achashverosh. It seemed that the slumber of the heavenly king was suddenly stirred. Now, truth be told, there is a verse in Tehillim in the book of Psalms, that speaks about Lamatishan Hashem, why is God sleeping? And obviously, if it's, it's euphemism, it's a, a figure of speech. But the Torah employs much anthropomorphism. We hear about God's eyes, we hear about God's nostrils, we hear about his hands, we hear about the flashing of his blade. The Torah uses the construct of human speech in order to convey certain messages. You only have to sleep because your body needs to regenerate itself. God does not have a body and doesn't need to regenerate himself. and doesn't get tired and doesn't get hungry. It's actually pathetic. These are, these are like moot, ridiculous comments. It's like that multiplication equation is like, it's six months old. Is it rotten yet? 
What do you mean? It doesn't get rotten. Well, everything gets rotten. Even the wood rots eventually. Yes, but ideas don't rot. Why not? Well, because they don't. Because they don't decompose. Because it has no physicality. Okay, but an idea is part of our world. And just like radio waves can't get old or die, and just like light doesn't smell, if it's blue or red or green, it doesn't have a different smell to it. Zimut terminology. In the realm of photons, there is no smell and there is no touch. We have hard light and soft light. People talk about that, but it's euphemistic. Hard on the eyes, softer on the eyes. It's not hard and soft in a literal sense. It's figuratively hard or soft light. And yet this is all part of our reality. The photons are as much a part of our material world, our physical world, our quantum physics world, as are the density of rocks, solid, or things that are liquid, or things that are gas. The point, of course, is that even within the realm of that which is common, there's moot terminology. So obviously it doesn't mean Hashem literally sleeps. So why would we use that euphemism? Why would we use such an expression? You tell me why. <laughs> why do you say it's hard light or soft light? Why do you say this is a hard problem or a soft problem? Because it's, it, it conveys a message. It's not meant literally. A sweet personality has nothing to do with taste. It conveys a message. A sweet song can't be mixed into your coffee. And a delicious cup of coffee doesn't have a sound. It's not a song. When somebody's sleeping, they're inactive, if you will, checked out. You know, people come into a room and say, he's sleeping, yeah, he's sleeping, you can do whatever you want now. What if he wakes up? Oh, they're going to be in trouble. Shh, tiptoe around. You don't want to wake him up. God says he loves his Jewish people. God says that we're his chosen. God says we're his children. All of humanity is created in God's image. All of humanity is not only capable of, but responsible for and has the privilege of nurturing a meaningful relationship with God. That's the meaning of religion, by the way. Religion is a mechanism, a system through which the Creator allows us, human beings, created entities, to have a relationship with Him. But the Jewish people are given a unique kind of opportunity because their souls are unique. Really? So why they slay them for genocide? You know, the people kind of sarcastically say, chosen for suffering? Chosen for persecution? Chosen for genocide? I mean, if it's God loves us, we're his people. Like, what exactly is going on over here? Say, ah, God must be asleep. Why do you use the term asleep? Asleep because because asleep describes now. An atheist says God is dead. I there's no God. Okay, whatever. 
Don't confuse you with the facts, he says. The believer says, I don't know, God's sleeping. Meaning, we are in a situation now where it doesn't seem, God doesn't seem to be engaged, to care about what's going on. Checked out. So up until this point, God doesn't seem to care. The Jewish people are slated for genocide. Bloody murder. No Jews left. Nothing's happening. No miracles, no clap of thunder. No bad people are dying. Everything's fine. It seems like God's sleeping. At this point, now we're going to sense the presence of Hashem. So, proverbially, we say, God is awake. And according to Rabbi Tanchuma, that is precisely what the Megillah is trying to tell us. The miracles start here. The Rabbonon Amri and the rabbis had a different take on this. The Rabbonon said, yes, it's more than just the king couldn't sleep. There's, a, there's something bigger going on here. But we don't use that kind of terminology. God waking up. No. It says disturbed. There was things were shook. There's movement. In general, the word nodadu is a funny word to use for waking somebody up. Nayed means movement. There's movement here. There's a movement. The king's sleep has moved. So movement indicates something's happened. Some, <laughs> they say, what's shaken? Stuff is shaken. There's a major shakeup going on right now. What does this mean? So the truth is that there's, um, if you will, more than, than meets the eye, even to the words of just upper ones and lower ones, you know. This, there's a discussion of what exactly that means altogether. In the Sefer Reach Dudoyim, he says, he says, what do you mean he couldn't sleep? If he was up, he couldn't sleep. It should just have said that Achashverosh said, I'd like to read that book. Bring me my memory book, my uh, royal records. Obviously, he's not sleeping. Like, why do we even have to say the king's sleep was disturbed? It's like a verse that almost screams, that begs for, hey, there's something more going on here. So the Rabbanan said, El that's what's going on here. Let's take a look at Rashi. 
Rashi says, Shnas Malka Shaloylam. Dugmo, we find an example of this in the 78th Psalm. It says, Vayikatz, he arose, he awoke. Kiyoshan Hashem, because he was like sleeping God. Lincoln Nikmasai, to exact his vengeance. So Rashi explains it this way. There was a constant, constant state of awokeness. He's getting shook all night. These angels, maybe it's a force, maybe it's a an idea in his head. I don't know if Umrule means they said to him, he heard voices. He got the message, however that was, that was sending a message to him. Kfutoiva, you really are an ingrate. You have no appreciation. Shalem toiva. Be what we call a mensch. Be a decent person. Acknowledge that which was done for you. Be a grateful individual. Live with gratitude. Lumisha saw somebody did something for you. Rashi does something very unusual here. He says, this is the syntax of my teacher. Lashen Moiri. This is for my teacher. The Yeshem, Rashi is not sure if that's what it means. He says, the others say, that's actually referring to something very different. Kedei sheyirbu. So that they should be shaken up and increase or intensify their level of prayerful entreaty. Now, according to the first take in Rashi, the Tachtoinim, the lower ones, or the lower one, is Achashverosh. So there was angels having a party. And Achashverosh was invited. He just didn't know they were having him for lunch. They were shaken, so he was shaken. The Elyonim, the angels, shook him up. That's how the Reich Dudoyim explains the, the first words of Rashi. And then he says the second words of Rashi. The Malachim, Nodudu, who were they shaking? The Reich Dudayim says, this talks about the Jewish people. They shook up the people. In other words, it's not even part of the story. It doesn't show up here. But that night, Mordechai was teaching Torah and praying with 20,000 school children. Tachnunim was, Levakesh me Hashem shiyashiyah to plead, to beg to Hashem that they be saved from their difficult straits. The Maharsha says, if we take the second interpretation, the Tachtoinim can't be speaking about Achashverosh, it must be speaking about Am Yisrael, about the Jewish people. The Sifzich HaChamim has a very, very fascinating way to explain this Rashi. He says, they were shaking on high, 
because there was shaking below. He suggests that the two interpretations in Rashi actually complete each other. The Malachim are shaking the king, They're bombarding him with messages, thought clusters, ideas, unease, anxiety, worry, concern. He's consumed by something from the inside. He doesn't know where it's coming from. Did you ever have an idea, just out of the blue, and not know where it's coming from, a premonition? You just knew something was good or not? A sixth sense? Many people have experienced things like this. But what do you think a malach is, an angel? A person with wings? No. Why not? I'll tell you why not. Because a person with wings is a person with wings. He's not an angel. He's a person with wings. <laughs> an angel is not a person with wings added. An, an angel is a term we use for something we don't really understand. An angel can assume a person, the form of a person. An angel can also assume the form of an animal or a rock, or a piece of wood, or a fire. An angel can create phenomenon that becomes a convention for what it is supposed to do. But an angel is not anything tangible. It's not seen with the eye. Whatever would be seen would merely be a figure of speech. It's a way to convey a message. You know, like once upon a time people used hieroglyphics, and they drew little pictures. And today we have in our iPhones little pictures. We answer with smiley faces and thumbs up. Same thing. I used to wonder when I was a kid, why did they use hieroglyphics? They were intelligent enough to have an alphabet. Why did they use pictures? I couldn't understand it. Now I understand it very well. It's much easier to go, Send a thumbs up, then write, oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. That's, uh, I, thanks for responding so quickly. Just go, boom, press a button. I don't have to say, wow, that's great. I'm really happy for you. I just send a smiley face. So an angel comes in an image. He doesn't have to talk. He sees. Jeremiah was shown a boiling pot. And the angel says to him, you know what you're looking at? He says, yeah, God's anger. It's an image. Is an angel a radio wave? Maybe. Is an angel a thought? Is an angel a premonition? Or that which causes these things? So an angel is a force. It's an energy force. An energy field. Of sorts. Non-tangible. Not part of nuclear physics. What motivated, what created this angelic force that was pummeling the Achashverosh man now? What was knocking Achashverosh out? What was, what was causing all this anxiety, this worry, this inability? What was disturbing his sleep? The answer is an angelic, many angels, angelic forces. Specifically the angel Gabriel. Why? Because... 
when we pray with open hearts to Hashem, when He chooses to listen, then the actions we take and the words we speak and the thoughts we have create energy. And the Mishnah tells us, you do a mitzvah, you create a defending angel. You do a sin, you create a monster, a prosecuting angel. It's quite literal, but not tangible or physical. So there's a yoinim and tachtoinim. There's a major shakeup going on. What's the shakeup? The shakeup is that the Jewish people have woken up. They are awoke. This is a woke moment. Achashverosh is awoke. It's a woke moment. Okay. So let's say something about the woke thing, though. I see we have a question here. Shanil gets a kick out of me using YouTube. All right. Good stuff. Shukoyach. Um, if Achashverosh fears Haman's power, why does he order him to lead Mordechai on a horse? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> That's a very good question. Sure, and I'm going I'm to answer that question soon. So, but I want to, uh, I want to, I want to, I want to share a little, say a little something about woke. By the way, I, you're not going to get opinions from me about things which are not relevant to Torah. It's because it's, it's actually irrelevant. It doesn't matter what I think about Black Lives Matter. It doesn't matter what I think about the woke movement. It doesn't matter. It's, it's nothing to do. My, my, my job is to teach you Torah. I'm teaching you Torah. But I want to talk to you about the terminology woke because, you know, people are woke. So I called today's class awoke, not awake. Not awakened, awoke. Why? So the earliest usage of the word woke, which is big, it's very big today. But the earliest usage, at least in a, in a political sense, goes back to 1962. There's a New York Times Magazine article written by William Melvin Kelly, and it's titled, If You're Woke, Dig It. Nobody's digging it anymore, but that's when we hear about woke, if you're woke. The article described the appropriation of African-American vernacular English, A-A-V-E, by white beatniks. Okay? I does not really speak to me. Then I read that in addition to, the, in addition to this, some 50 years ago, 1971, in the play Garvey Lives by Barry Beckham, he reads like this. I've been sleeping all my life. And now that Mr. Garvey done woke me, woke me up, I'm going to stay woke and I'm going to get help and wake up other black folk. So my understanding then of this term woke is different than wake or awaking because you know what happens when the alarm clock rings? You're awake until you go back to sleep. Don't tell me you've never done that. You wake up, you go back to sleep. What's accomplished? Actually nothing. 
And that, my dear friends, is the point. You have to stay awake. And that's what woke means. So, my Google power also told me that the word woke became entwined with the Black Lives Matter movement. Instead of just being a word that signaled awareness of injustice or racial tension, it became a word of action. Activists were woke and called on others to stay woke, Merriam-Webster explains. So actually, the terminology or the idea of wokeness comes from the Torah. It comes from the Megillah. Achashverosh was woke. He didn't just wake up. He was nodada. He was awoke. And awoke means he couldn't go back to sleep. He, he was aware of a problem and he needed to get an answer to the problem. He had to stay alert. Why was he awoke? Because the Jewish people were woke. <laughs> How it is sometimes people are faced with a situation and Mordechai would come and give them a whole sermon and tell them we have to pray and they spend, okay, we did it. We daven for three days. We fasted for three days. Can I eat now? Can we go back to regular life? And the people stayed awake. That was the if you will, the chiddush, the novelty of this remarkable wave of tshuva, the people stayed woke, spiritually woke. They were deeply aware of their situation. They remained aware for a full year. In fact, the Alter Rebbe says in Torah Ur that the people lived b'mesidas nefesh, a whole year. They walked around with targets on their back. You know, all this is going on behind closed doors, there was still a decree out there. We read in the Megillah that three months later, Esther throws herself at Achashverosh's feet. Haman is dead, his children are dead, his house is already in the possession of the Jewish people of Mordechai and Esther. But the decree is still, it's in motion. And the enemies of Israel are still looking at them saying, you guys are dead, you ain't gonna last. We've already chosen a day. So the people stayed woke spiritually. The point was, it was a word that signaled not just an awareness, but a word of action. That's what's going on here. Because Achashverosh takes action. Because the Jewish people took action. It kind of went like this. There was back and forth. We, our ancestors, were shaking the heavens. We were praying. So we were woke, and that caused the Malachim to be woke. And then they took action. And now Achashverosh is woke. And then he takes action. And the rest, as they say, is history. So the Gemara says, there is yet another opinion as to what exactly this means. Rava Omarava says, 
And it doesn't mean he argues about the facts of the matter, but his question is, what is the verse emphasizing? Is the verse emphasizing God waking up? Is the verse emphasizing we, the Jewish people, who woke up and caused the malachim to be woke? Or are we talking about Achashverosh's wokeness? We have three levels of wokeness. Our wokeness, the Tachtoinim, there's the wokeness of malachim, or God's wokeness, and then there's the royal wokeness here on earth. Rava says, all this is behind the scenes, but when the curtains open, when the Megillah's narration says, it means Achashverosh, Mamash, literally. So what was going on? What, what did his wokeness look like? Says the Gemara, All of a sudden, he has an overactive imagination. All of a sudden, he's thinking. He's thinking and he says, Omar. Hmm. This is strange. This is, this is unusual. He said, My, the common, the zimante, Esther Lahoman. What's up with this business where Esther's inviting Haman? I mean, it wasn't like a a state, a state ball, state dinner. It's like a little party. Little intimate parties should be for me and Esther. What's Haman doing there? And he said, I wonder, I wonder what she's up to. I wonder what she's thinking. I wonder what, and she wants to have another party like this. She asked him again to come to the party. Very strange. So he can't sleep. And he's thinking, he's thinking. He says, oh, Dilma eats a koshakli. I love Maybe they're thinking. Maybe they're plotting something. There's some kind of machination going on over here. They're plotting against Hahu Gavra, the big guy. I'm the big guy, Achashverosh thinks to himself. They're plotting against the big guy. Lamiktele, they want to kill me. I don't believe this. The Prime Minister is planning a coup with the Queen. It's crazy stuff. <laughs> Isn't there a Shakespeare play like that? Where the brother of the king kills the king and takes his wife or something. Come on, somebody online must just know what it is. I forget what it's called. All is not quiet in Denmark, no? So he says, Ihachi, if in fact this is true, he thinks to himself, Hadaramar, then he says, Ihachi, if it's true, Havre Gavre de Rochemli, the Havre Moidali, somebody gotta know something. Why am I not being tipped off? You can't pull off a thing like this with two people. People have to know. Why don't I know about this? Hamlet, yes. (laughs) 
Hamlet, a horrible tale. Thank you, I agree. I'm just saying. So, somebody's got to know something. Why is nobody telling me anything? You know, making a coup in a country like that involves thousands of people. Certainly hundreds. I mean, when you make a coup by yourself, somebody has to know something. Then he started to think, oh, one second. Dilma Ike Inish, the Ovid Bey Tuvuse, maybe there's somebody who did me a favor. I never paid him back. Maybe I have a name as an ingrate. Maybe I'm not there for people. Maybe there's a reason nobody would tell me or tip me off because I never show appreciation. That's not good. What should I stick my neck out for? Why should I be the one to tell them? And what if they succeed and then they find me out and I'll be dead too? I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna watch it happen. Stay out of the way. And so he said, uh-oh, I better review things. Because if there's somebody who I forgot, I need to show everybody I'm an appreciative man. You take care of Akashverosh, big daddy's going to take care of you. Don't you worry. It's a good investment. You wait and see what Akashverosh does. She has no idea who, that Esther is coming from Mordechai. She has, he has no, he's not thinking about the Jewish people. He has no intentions of trying to do anything about the, the, the decree. It's the last thing on his mind. What does he care about a few Jews? A few million people dead. It's meaningless to him. He only cares about one thing. Achashverosh. That's all. That's all that matters. Haman will know this. Someone understands this. Achashverosh has a need to make a statement. So you're asking the question, if uh, Haman was, uh, if Achashverosh is afraid of Haman, why would he make him do those things to Mordechai? Haman was actually not plotting, as a matter of fact. And you don't just pull off a coup, like you, you have to make sure every single I is dotted, every T is crossed, like you gotta do this at the right time. So if Haman gets desperate and he realizes the jig is up, he's gonna be dead, so he's gonna be dead, you're gonna be dead anyway, he's gonna fight back. But making a fool of himself is not dead. He may gnash his teeth, he may decide that he wants to come after Achashverosh, or he may Eat his humble bread, suck it up, as they say, and move on. Achshverosh is a very powerful man. He's the guy who killed his wife on a whim because she wouldn't dance around and show her stuff to the guys who were all drunk. That, that was, that's, this guy's a maniac. He's ruthless. He's brutal. His people knew it. You weren't taking chances. You know, it's like to say about skydiving, if you didn't succeed the first time, don't try again. This was a one-shot deal. You didn't survive a coup attempt. So if you're going to make that coup, there's only one of two reasons. One, you're 100% certain you're going to succeed, or you think you are, or you're dead anyway.
but he's not dead anyway. At this point, Haman does not know where things are going. Achashverus just wants to hear what's written in the books. And Haman's mazel, his bad luck, he happens to walk into a trap that he has no clue about. Which is, of course, miraculous. And now we will be introduced to the world's We learn from Mordechai there's a plot to kill a Jew. Skippy, that's beyond the purview of this Gemara, but I'm, we'll get to it someday. So the Gemara says, Vayoymer, Achashverosh does the logical thing. This is not like most kids think he couldn't sleep, so read me bedtime stories. No, 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 my friends. This is not bedtime stories. Achashverosh is very woke now. Or as they used to say, awake. He's very alert. His survival instinct has kicked in. He's running on adrenaline. He needs to find out who he left out. I mean, the guy is brilliant, actually, a brilliant strategist. He created this whole chess game in his head. She's doing this. She's bringing Haman. That doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Something's off here. They may be plotting something. If they're plotting something, somebody's got to know something. Why isn't somebody saying something? Aha, I probably have a bad reputation. Who did I not repay? I'm pretty good. I take care of people. Well, clearly I'm not, because nobody's saying anything to me. I better review the royal records. I got, I, got, I got to review what happened, find out who that guy is, and make sure people know, I'll take care of you. If you see something, say something. But Omar Lahavi, Vayemer Lahavi, he says, okay, bring the big books. Bring the books with the memories. Divre Hayomim, the chronicles. Nikroyim, and they will be read. Now the word Vayiu Nikroyim is very strange because the vowelization of Vayihiu Nikroyim sounds like a talking book. As the Gemara says, Nikroyim, Vayiu Nikroyim Milamid, Shenikroyim Aleyim. The books read themselves. Let's take a look inside Rashi. We missed the Rashi here, and I want to make up for it. Rashi says, "My the kamon dizimante." What's up with this invitation? What's going on over here? Never heard of such a thing. Queens inviting kings and prime ministers, private. Never heard of such a thing. So the book is getting read by itself. Where do we see that? What, like what, what, what about the word Vayu Nikroyim tips us off to the world's first talking book? So the Marsha says, it doesn't say that they should read the books to me. It would have said then, Vihiyu. 
But because it says Vayihiu, past tense, Viyu, they will read the book to me. Here it says Vayihiu. And the books were read. What do you mean read? How do they get read? So there's, they sound to read themselves. That means before the person who was tasked with reading the book or even knew what he was saying, all of a sudden he found himself, I suppose, making noise. Maybe he felt like ventriloquist. I don't know what this means, but that's what it says. The book read by itself. As the Beis Yitzchak says, it should have said V'yihiyu with a shva, which means future tense. But because it says V'yihiyu, the intimation is, as soon as they brought it, the books were read. They brought red books. Red books. It's like being woke. Something had to be happening here. What happens? He founds, he finds written. He found it? It's like lost and he found it? What does that mean? This has been written long ago. It should sort of said, Kosav. It was written. He found what was written. What do you mean? It's like dynamic. It was just written. Rashi says, Kosuv, mash Kosuv Sounds like something just happened. He found that something was just written. Kosuv, Kosav, mash Kosav is past tense. Vayimotze Kosuv, Sefer Zikaron Lafon of Ashegid Lamarchai. He finds now, now being written, that Mordechai, a story with Mordechai, Mordechai saved his life. This gives you, by the way, an appreciation as to why we have to be so precise. About, about, how we, about, about how we read the Megillah, because <laughs> the miracle is in the details of how things went. But you might say Kosuv is part of the story. And the story is that it actually was, now it was just written. It's just written. Why was it just written? So the Gemara tells us something absolutely unbelievable. It's so unbelievable, it's a page turner. We're now on Daf Tes Zion, page 16. The Gemara says there was this guy whose name was Shemshai. Shemshai made himself into an eraser. Shemshai, instead of writing things, which is what he was supposed to do, Shemshai was erasing. Moichek, he's erasing the stories. And the Malach Gavriel, Koisev, the Gavriel Koisev, Shem Shai Mochoi, Moichek Gavriel Koisev. It's wild stuff. The book is talking, and it was just written by an angel. So, how exactly does that work? Like, you're standing in front of the king, like, straight close. Let's try to picture this. You're standing in front of the king. You're reading a book. Why are you reading? You're erasing. And the king, he's not sleepy. His adrenaline is pounding. He's wide awake and his life, his life is flashing in front of him now. He needs to know exactly what happened. And the guy is erasing the book in front of him? Seriously? He would have blown up. He would go crazy. That doesn't make any sense. We'll soon find out. Who this Shemashi Shemshai is, but he'd be a crazy guy to do that. 
Rashi tells us, Sefer HaMelech, it's the royal scribe. But he wasn't just a royal scribe. He was also a huge anti-Semite. Soini Yisraeli hated the Jews. And he's an old scribe. He's not an Achashverosh man. He's been around. He was the scribe, Miyamos Koresh, from the days of Koresh. Like it says in the book of Ezra, Rashi says in the fourth chapter, Shekos of Sitna, Binyam Habayas, he's the one who wrote the prosecuting arguments against the building of the base of Migdash. Shabbat Kurdish Bitla, Kurdish came and said, forget it. Stop the building now. The Afpi He did this twice. So this is a guy who took a lot of liberties. He was uh, a chief of staff who sometimes behaved like a chief executive officer. Shanemar, as it says, Somebody wrote a polemic, an argument against building a base of Migdash. So that was Shamashai. Shamashai is a very big, he's a big guy in the, in the administration. Very powerful man. He has huge amount of influence. Now, the Bach says something fascinating. He says, Seder Oilam says that it was the children of Haman that wrote this Sitna. And the intimation of what the Bach is saying is kind of, he's suggesting that if Rashi is linking this Shamoshai to Kos of Sitna, and then in Seder Olam it says that that was done by Haman's children, Shamoshai is one of Haman's children. By the way, this itself is a proof that Haman had other children in addition to the ten who were hung, because Shamoshai is not mentioned. He's not one of them. So he's Haman's son, He's supposed to be reading to the king. And how does that work? Like, how does that work? So here is the way the Mepharshim explain it. The Ben Yehiyada suggests, the Ben Ishchai, he says like this. There was actually two sets of books. One set of books is called Sefer Zichronot, the Book of Remembrances. And there, everything's written down in point form. Very good question, Why Malach Gavriel? I'll get to that soon. Everything's written in point form. Vahasheni, the second book, that's called Divre Hayomim. There's the book of remembrances, and then there's the book of chronicles. You know what it's like? It's like a simple example. You have, let's say, you, you go to a Wikipedia page, and you can like, it's like short, just a short, and you, you can click if you want more. You know, you ask Siri a question, she brings up like, gives you a few lines. You want more, you click. But a lot of times you don't want more. So you want to just go over the day's events, the week's events, the month's events, just go over, review things. A lot of times, a guy like Achashverosh would read the chronicles and see if a pattern starts emerging. See if the strange things that happened in the court. He was always on his toes. By the way, Achashverosh does get assassinated in the end, leaving behind a small son. 
a little Jewish boy named Darius, who becomes the king after him. So many of these despotic, brutal, powerful monarchs were deposed. They were feared, hated, revered, despised. <laughs> they were always one step away from being destroyed. And they knew it. They were playing a very brutal game of politics at all time. Reshuffling their cabinets and demoting this one and picking up that one. You know, just a strategy of keeping everybody at bay. So Shamosha, he's the big guy. He, he controls the big books. He's got his reader up there in the front. And the reader is next to the king. He's reading from the Book of Remembrances. Shamoshai is looking and following along in the big, the long chronicles, the long form. So he sees Mordecai's name, quickly erases Mordecai's name. A man, a person, a good Samaritan, somebody saved the king. He erases the name. Couldn't do this in front of the king, but he wasn't in front of the king. So when he came to the story of Bigson and Zeresh, it's easy. Strike. He struck out a word. And what happens? By the time the book came to the hands of the reader, Mordechai's name had been rewritten. And that's the meaning of Kosov. Bo Gavriel Nes, and Gavriel says the Ben Yehoyada wrote the name in. There's another Mephirish called the Eni Yitzchak has a different suggestion. He says that Shamashai was like the, also like, a, as he called him, a chief librarian. He managed the books. So he was always erasing that story. He erased that story. And Gavriel would rewrite the story. And he found the story and he'd erase it again. It's a miracle. I like the Ben Yoda's answer. It's dynamic. The miracles are happening now. So the Gemara now says something astounding, an astounding lesson from this we learn. Omar Rabbi Asi. Rabbi Asi said, Dorosh Rabbi Shiloh Ish Kfar Tamarta. Rabbi Shiloh, the man from the Tamarta village, he said like this. He said, that this business of things being written after they were erased is not just an earthly or terrestrial phenomenon in the royal chronicles of the Persian Empire. Ma Kosov Shalomato, what was written below the writing in of Mordechai's name, which was in effect what brings about good things for the Jewish people. That the anti-Semites can't manage to stamp out and change history. Then how much more so you can't stamp out good things written on high. What does that mean? 
So there's a fascinating suggestion that this is business of the merits of the Jewish people being stamped out or not stamped out comes on the heels of a very interesting Gemara in Masechet Sota. The Gemara speaks in Masechet Sota on page 21 about the possibility of mitzvot performed and Torah studied serving to shield and protect. And the Gemara suggests that there's a difference between Torah and between mitzvot. That we say near mitzvah, mitzvahs are like a lamp, but Torah or. So light, effulgence, can't, so to speak, be extinguished. According to some opinions, it means the daylight. But a lamp, a small fire can be extinguished. And there's an opinion in the Gemara that says that sometimes a mitzvah doesn't come to shield and protect. But the Torah, its merit is always there. It remains with a person. The Gemara says something very interesting. You did a mitzvah. That's true. However, along with the doing of a mitzvah, it is possible that Aveira mechaba mitzvah, that the darkness, the black hole, created by virtue of a sin can actually swallow and crush the photons, the light created by the mitzvah. But it can never swallow the light of Torah. This is what the Gemara Masechet Seita says. And as such, there's this tantalizing suggestion that the Gemara here is disputing that concept. How does the Gemara dispute that concept? So the Gemara seems to dispute the concept because the Gemara is saying that if these merits are being erased in heaven, if earthly merits are rewritten, surely heavenly merits are going to be rewritten. So I want to make a humble little suggestion over here. If you look at Rabbeinu Yena, in Shara Tshuva, Rabbeinu Yena says something fascinating. He says in the first Shar, in section 41, he says on the words, Kol Tisa Oven, the Kachtaif, to carry or to bear iniquity and take good, that our sages tell us that the good that's done can always be reconstituted, so to speak. In other words, yes, it's true. The darkness of sin can crush the light. But you can always bring it back. It just takes a little tshuva. That's exactly what Agamara is saying. It's all part of the woke. They were awake. They were alive. They were storming the heavens. They were not taking this sitting down. It was an awareness that brought about action. And so action 
Gavriel is writing the name of Mordechai, but even more so, the name, the merit of the Jewish people is being reinstated. Powerful lesson about the power of tshuva and the ability for us to overcome the darkness of sin and to experience a reclamation of the energy, of the light, and of the profundity of what a mitzvah is. So a mitzvah is never really lost. Even when it's in that black hole, it can always be retrieved. And we finish off with something very interesting. This will be the conclusion for tonight. It says the king asked the question. He says, what happened? So what do we do for this guy, Mordechai? In other words, he says, aha, I got it. I figured it out. We have, I have a bad reputation. What I do for him? So the Megillah says that the Nare HaMelech, the young uh, fellows around there, said, nothing happened. Omar Rava, Rava says, I want you to know something. It wasn't because they loved Mordechai that much. They hated Haman. Not that the, it was not out of love for Mordechai. It was my enemy's enemy. He's my friend. That's why they spoke well of Mordechai. How do we know this? Well, there's like a whole discussion in the Mepharshim how we know this. Achashverosh said, What kind of glory? What kind of honor? They could have said, They said, no, it's a dover. Nothing. Not a dover wasn't done. They didn't say, If they wanted to speak about Mordechai, remonstrate on his behalf, they said, There was no yukar. There was no gedula. They didn't say, This is Lainasa dover. Could have said Loinasa. means what was done? Nothing was done. No thing was done. No thing indicates they weren't especially in love with Mordechai. But hey, they hated Haman. And that helps you understand that you realize that Haman's, Haman's position is not that good himself. He had a lot of sons. That's where he had loyalty from. He himself had a tremendous amount of jealousy jealousy against him and Esther knew it and she tried to exploit it. Others maintain that the fact is that they wouldn't say a name. When you don't say somebody's name, hey you, him. Ashwar said, what was done for Mordechai? He used his name. It says in the Megillah. What do they say? Nothing for him. So from this, we have this idea that the concept of actually saying somebody's name indicates that you care or you love him. So it wasn't about love for Mordechai. Yeah, the questioner, since it was Haman's job, I don't know if it was Haman's job to reward people as a rule, but he shows up that night when this is what's on his mind. It wasn't necessarily Haman's job. I don't know if they made Haman look bad. Okay, so, so this was interesting. So uh, 
you know, that's, that's like a famous, it's a famous saying. It's a, fa a saying in Latin, freely translated, you know, uh, your, uh, your enemy's friend, your enemy's enemy is your friend. So I, I, I Googled, just curious to see where, where, you know, where does it come from. So, so some people think that it's, it, it gets credited to an Indian philosopher who's known by the name of Hanakya or Katilya. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Who lived in the fourth century before the Common Era. And in his Arthashastra book, Source of Sovereign States, he wrote, quote, the king who is situated anywhere immediately on the circumference of the conqueror's territory is termed the enemy. The king who is likewise situated close to the enemy but separated from the conqueror only by the enemy is termed the friend of the conqueror. So that's the origin. Another guy wrote that he believes that this is based on a phrase written in an old book from 700 of the Common Era. It's a phrase that was said by Imam Ali in the book Naj Ablaja. I don't know. And it said like this Your friends are three your friend, your friend's friend, and the enemy of your friend. And your enemies are three your enemy, your friend's enemy, and your enemy's friend. Well, I gotta tell you, I grew up with this. I don't, I don't even remember the first time I heard my father saying this Loi meavas Mordechai, Elamisinas Haman. So guess what? It comes from us. This idea comes from the Gemara itself. The Gemara says, do not think that the Jews were that popular. Do not think that anybody would have stuck their neck out for Mordechai. They wouldn't have. Esther knew this. But she also knew that the people hated and were jealous of Haman. And she was banking on those feelings towards Haman to help her tip the scales. Anyway, that's all for tonight. Thank you so much for joining. I uh, hope it wasn't too long. I appreciate your participation. And I do look forward, Bezrat Hashem, to seeing you join and participate for Torah study right here on YouTube again soon. I'll be back with God's help. On Monday with a Yudzvat special. Again, thank you for joining. I hope you found it inspirational, uplifting, or at least educational. If you did, please be so kind as to hit like. I'd appreciate it if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook and you could share this. And please, if you haven't yet, subscribe youtube.com forward slash Shabbat Mendel Kaplan. God bless you all. Laila Tov. <laughs>